If you notice in your in your uh, handout that you received today in your bulletin, you've got not just nine and a half pages of notes, but you have a chart. Okay? I'm going to be respectful of everybody's time. I'm going to be done in 45 minutes. So if we don't reach the end of it, yeah, everybody's like, need to confess that lie, Pastor. Right? No, no. I'm going to try to stick to it. Uh, and if we don't get done today, we just don't, we'll trickle over into next week. So if for some reason we don't have an application, I promise you, I'm not going to try to scrape for one just to make it be a sufficient sermon. Uh, but I hope that this will intrigue everybody enough of what we're looking at to, to keep you going. So pens, anybody? Excellent. There you go. There you go. You pass one down there. Excellent. Who needed one over here? Right here. Excellent. Yeah, there you go. Nothing wrong with that. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm not throwing them anymore, so you don't need fear to keep you from, okay. There you go. Anybody else? We good? Excellent. There you go. Everybody else got it? Good? Yes? Excellent. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn open to Matthew 13. We've been going through parables. Jesus begins speaking to the Jews in parables, and it's a very odd situation, so much that when he gets alone with his disciples, the very first question out of their mouth is, Jesus, why are you talking like this? This is very odd. This is very strange for you to be addressing these subjects in a way that people can't understand. Now, for those of you who are new, it's your first time here, you might be just a slight bit lost. I'm going to try to fill in the gaps as best as possible to make sure that that doesn't happen. But whenever Jesus is speaking in parables, does anybody remember the reason that he gives why he speaks in the parables? Why is it that he is now teaching differently in a way in his earthly public ministry that he's never taught before? Does anybody know? Okay, so he's what? He's preaching to the Gentiles too? Eh, we kind of get that in there. Maybe they're peppered in somewhere, but we wouldn't bank on that. Close. Because he has been rejected by the leadership of Israel. Get this, guys, because this is a, this is a prominent uh, truth in Scripture that stretches across the board even into our day. Leaders speak on behalf of a nation. Okay? This is why things like voting your conscience is important. Leaders speak on behalf of a nation. They are going to represent the people. And they're going to represent the people in such a way as to when they make a decision, it is going to be part and parcel of us seeking to place them in office. So when you have the Pharisees, who are the leaders of the Jewish nation, and they come across Jesus doing miraculous works, having a man with a withered hand telling him to stretch out his hand, and he does, and it's made whole just like his other one is, and they say, oh, this must be the Messiah. And they look at the crowds and they say, no, 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 no. This guy heals people through the power of Satan. Now, if we just stop for a second and logically think about that, does that make sense? It makes no sense that that Satan would want to do anything good for anybody, does it? No, not at all. And so Jesus calls them on this. He points out the illogical conclusion that they've come to, and what we find out is, is that it's not just a remark of unbelief, because it seems pretty clear that the Pharisees know who he is. It is an anti-belief. It's just like when you deal with an atheist, it is someone who doesn't believe that God exists, right? Ah, negates it is the idea. 
But when you deal with people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, what you find out is, is they're not denying the existence of God. They're actually acknowledging in a lot of what they say that he does exist, but they are anti-theists. They know God's there. They just hate him. That's the difference. Well, notice the Pharisees have stepped into this same realm. Everything points to the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited, highly promised, prophesied about Messiah that they have been waiting for, and his part and parcel of his ministry is to bring in and usher the kingdom into physical existence. Everybody with me so far? Okay, excellent. So here are some things that we see. If you want to look in your notes, you can probably skim and scan a little bit, but I'm not going to let that hold us too much. But I do want to read to you a quote that's on the first page of the notes, if you would. And you'll see it. It's kind of right in the middle of the big first paragraph by a guy named Alva McLean. He wrote an excellent work called The Greatness of the Kingdom. If you're ever looking for something to spend some money on for Christmas for yourself, get The Greatness of the Kingdom. It's a good book. It says here, These parables of the kingdom even for the saved, must be divinely interpreted in order to serve any beneficial purpose. In no area of the Word of God is there greater need for caution on the part of the interpreters than in the parables, and especially in those concerned with the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, did everybody who's in hermeneutics class, your ears just perk up, yes? Okay, I'm going to tell you real quick before we continue this quote. Parables, more so than prophecy, are the hardest things to interpret in the scriptures. And I didn't even, I didn't, I, I spent nine and a half pages explaining to you how I came to the conclusion about the wheat and tares. I didn't even include probably 30 pages of everybody else's views on it that I thought were wrong for one reason or another. But if you have a commentary at home, take your notes and compare it to what you read from your commentary at home and then ask yourself in looking at the text, what does the text tell me? is true. That is the final authority on this. So notice what he says after that. Even the most spiritual and well-taught among students of the word may go astray here, and many an error has found its basis in some parabolic detail. And he gives you an example. When we talk about the three measures of leaven that was put in the batch of dough, we're not addressing that one today. We'll deal with that next week. But in that one, notice the example given. The gradual and ultimate triumph of the church in converting the world through the leavening process of the gospel. That is an interpretation that is often attributed to the parable of the leaven. Now stop for just a second. From what you know about leaven in the Old and the New Testament, is leaven ever a good thing spiritually? Never. In fact, leaven is often connected with false doctrine. Doesn't Jesus say... Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, at that time when Jesus said that, the disciples thought there was a bakery going on down the street. They didn't totally understand that. What? Is their bread bad? Should we not buy from them? And Jesus has to bring them back. No, listen to what I'm telling you, because their false doctrine will permeate everything. So even from Jesus' own example, in the book of Matthew, we see that leavening is a bad thing. So, Interpreting parables, extremely important. Is the gospel, this is a loaded question, is the gospel what is under consideration in the parables? No, it's not, is it? At least not the gospel of the grace of God, right? 
The gospel of the grace of God is we are undeserving, unworthy sinners who are destined for an eternity in hell separated from God because that's exactly what we deserve and what we have earned because we can't stop lying, we can't stop stealing, we can't stop lusting, everything. We are sinful beyond belief. We deserve condemnation. God, not being obligated to do anything about our helpless estate in his grace, his undeserved favor towards you and I, steps forward into history and provides the solution to our problem so that he can have a relationship with us. That solution is the person of Jesus, born perfectly, born without sin, born of a virgin, lived a life of no sin, and died a criminal's death in exchange for how we should have died to pay for our sin. That is the gospel of God's grace. God loves us. God gave his son for us. That whoever, good, thank you that no one said behaves. I love it. Whoever believes in him, do you trust him? Will not perish, but has what? Everlasting life. And how long is everlasting life? Praise God for that. I did nothing to earn my salvation before God. Jesus does all the work, and therefore I can't do anything to lose it either. If I am sinful beyond belief and unrepentant of that sin, as any good father would, he bends me over his knee, and he spanks me silly, and he'll do it. Anybody been spanked by the Lord? (laughs) man i got all kinds of volunteers for that those of you that didn't raise your hand liars repent okay hear that if you don't know the lord spanking you we need to have a conversation it's good but that's not what we have here in fact let me show you real quick matthew 13 look what it says we're going to start in verse 18 and we're just going to look at this for a second i just want to show this to you Verse 18 says, Hear then the parable of the sower. Now, we've already covered this, and if you missed it, you can listen to it online. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Does everybody see that? The word of the kingdom. That is the focus here. The focus is not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not what it is. Now, when we talk about the word of the kingdom, what are we talking about? See, we've had a couple of Sundays off, so we all got to get up to speed here. Well, we're, yes, we're not just, okay, Roxanne brought up something great. It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the contract that God made with Abraham saying, I will give you land, I will bring forth the seed, and through that seed I will bless the world. And it is the ultimate fulfillment of that, yes. But when we talk about what is it literally, when we talk about the kingdom, how is it understood? The future reign of Jesus Christ. We are talking about Jesus returning and setting up a literal kingdom on this earth, and he will rule the entire world from Jerusalem, seated on the throne of David, just as God has told us through 39 books called the Old Testament. Now, when you get into Matthew's gospel, can we all agree that when you, if you've read through, especially if you're in hermeneutics class, you're reading through sections of Matthew's gospel, does it have a Jewishness to it? Isn't it always referring back to the Old Testament? Anybody do your homework for tomorrow? Yeah, you had three weeks. Why? Because it took you three weeks to do it all. That's the reason why. But think about it. There's a lot going on there. It is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. Where is it written? Old Testament. Exactly. So notice there's a lot of that that's brought in in order to justify the conclusions that are made. Okay? Now, since that is the case, 
The word of the kingdom is the coming literal establishment of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning on earth. And so because the leaders have rejected him, that promise of the kingdom has been rescinded And now Israel is being placed on the back burner of history and God is going to do something brand new in Acts chapter two called the church. There's never been anything like it before and we are an extremely privileged person to be part of the church living in the church age. So the word of the kingdom, the promise of the future reign of Jesus Christ is something different than the grace of God. Now what we find through this parable is is that understanding makes the difference. Everybody remember the four soils? You might have your paper that we filled out there, the four soils. Remember the first one was rocky ground? And we talked about these are people who received the seed, they received that word, but what happens is, is Satan swoops in and snatches it away so that they cannot understand. Therefore, there's nothing beneficial or profitable that comes out of it. The second one that we dealt with was somebody hears this word, they embrace it, yeah, the coming reign of Christ, this is great. But when affliction and persecution come against them, whoa, no, I didn't never believe in that. What? No, no. I would much rather all of you at the water cooler like me than me stand for Jesus. It doesn't bear anything. How about whenever the word was scattered amongst those thorns? And what are the thorns? The wealth and the cares of this world. Are you easily bogged down by the cares of this world? Pay attention to what it says, because there's nothing fruitful that comes out of that. But it's the last soil, the good soil, that when it's spread upon that, it takes root, it produces a crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. And notice that the difference is, look down, verse 23, and the one on whom... Seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and what is it? Understands it. Understanding brings fruit bearing. That is the difference. And here's why understanding is important. This word understanding in the Greek means to set, to bring together, to set and to join something together. In fact, I have another definition here that I needed to read to you guys. To have an intelligent grasp of something that challenges one's thinking or practice. In other words, when you understand or you embrace the full implications that the Messiah is going to return at a future time and establish his kingdom, it changes the way that you live. It changes the decisions that you make. A good application for today is to simply mull over Chew on like a cow on some cud, that kind of thing. What's that? Ruminate. Ruminate. Thank you, thesaurus. I appreciate that. That's good. I wouldn't have known that word. Great. (laughs) Ruminate on it. Meditate on it. The idea of, am I living today in light of what is to come? Or am I so busy living for today that what's to come doesn't matter? In fact, Jesus summed it up this way, didn't he? Take up your cross daily and follow me. For what do you profit if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? That's talking about going to hell. No, it's not. He's talking to believers there. Should we not rather lose our lives now, not worry about getting the most out of life now for the sake of getting the most out of the life to come? Everybody see that? It's living in light of eternity, the return of Christ. So when we understand this, when we embrace this, The implications of what the future holds should change us. 
Now let's get into the parable of the wheat and the tares. Well, wait, before we do that, I'm sorry. Everybody look up at chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus answered them, speaking to the disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mysteries. Mysteries, mysterion is the Greek word. It is consistently used throughout the New Testament to mean something that is now being revealed at this time that was presently being concealed and not understood. That's what it means. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, there was no understanding of what was going on with that, but now at this present time, something different is being unfolded. I won't get into all the things about that. We could elaborate pretty heavily on that, but I don't want to do that. So let's go ahead and look over chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable, okay? Now we're going to go through this pretty slowly. If you want to pull out your paper, your chart, and go ahead and fill it out, that would be good. So let's start with the idea of who's speaking here. It's Jesus. And I love that because even if we didn't know, we could still say that name and probably get it right most of the time, right? That's how we do it in Sunday school. It's Jesus. There we go. So Jesus. Who is his audience? Does anybody remember the situation? No, it is not the disciple. It's what? It's the Jewish crowd, exactly. Now let's go over this real quick so that we're clear on what's going on. If you remember, Jesus came out of the house where he was, and he went and he sat by the sea, and the shore covered up so much with Jews wanting him to teach or to heal or something like that, that he got in a boat and he set out this way so that he had the shore as almost like a little amphitheater that he could teach. And so parables 1, 2, 3, and 4, this is the second parable, wheat and tares, all those are given to the crowds. And then, if you just take your Bible, use your finger, go down to verse 36 of chapter 13. Notice what it says. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. He goes back into the house he came out of, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So notice, after the fourth parable, and he doesn't say anything to them that is not in the form of a parable, he then comes back into the house, closes the doors, and now it's a private audience with his disciples for explanation. So when the audience changes, our understanding of what we're looking at should change. Everybody with me? Anybody need some dead razor? Just making sure. That's what I'm drinking right now. And real quick, look at verse 35 real quick. In speaking in parables, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now watch how this connects with the idea of mystery. And this is from the Old Testament. I will open my mouth in parables. I will speak in a way that is word imagery that comes alongside truths, but it's not completely clear to people. Notice this. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. That's Psalm 78. So notice even in that time when that Psalm was written, the idea of things previously concealed and now revealed, this is being used by Matthew and applied to this situation. Does everybody see that? Yes? No? Who's lost? Okay. Hey man, I'm trying to make this fun. Stick with me, right? I will start throwing pins. All right. Verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven. Stop. What is the subject? It's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to... Now pause for a second. 
if you just look back at the beginning of the parable of the sower. And notice it says, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Now that sets up the mindset for it. But what you will see is right here, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, now we've got something different. Now pause. What is the subject here? What is the subject in view? The kingdom of heaven. This is so important for you to get. I know it may seem like I'm making a big deal out of the obvious, but you would be blown away how many commentaries I've looked at where the kingdom of heaven means something other than the kingdom of heaven. Some people will say, no, it's the gospel. That's what it is. The gospel is how we should understand this. Let's read through this and maybe think about whether that makes sense. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now let's do this real quick. Our parable contents. Number one, we have a man. Okay? And we could go ahead and say that he is the sower of the seed. Is that correct? Yes? No? Everybody with me? Yes. If you wrote it down, Pastor, that's what we're doing. Right? That's in verse 25. And here's the reason why I want you to follow me writing this down, because when Jesus explains this parable, he doesn't explain every every person that's mentioned here. So it's important that we choose what he does. So notice, there's a man, he's the sower. And notice it says that he sowed good seed. Everybody see good seed? Okay, let's write that down in our next block here. And that's in verse 25 as well. And notice that it says, in his field. Everybody see the field? Okay, don't spell it wrong. It's not F-E-I. That I and E gets me all messed up. I'm from Kentucky, so that's okay. Um, But notice the next part of it, verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, now this is important, because when Jesus gives us the explanation, he does not explain who the men are, and he does not explain why they're sleeping. He doesn't give us any details about that. Therefore, it is safe for us not to assume anything about it or to try to make sense of it if Jesus hasn't done it for us. Does that make sense? Only hold to what the text says. So it says, but while the men were sleeping, his enemy came. Ah, enemy. Enemy is our next one under field, and that's in verse 26. What's that? Is it 25? Oh, it is 25. What am I doing? Oh, Well, I'm not, thank you. Whoever did the uh, trombone sound, I appreciate that. I am not beyond making mistakes, obviously. So notice the enemy came and sold, what is it? Tares. Now, here's what I want you to do. You're going to write the word tares here, and it's verse 25. Tares, I want you to write a little slash, and I want you to write this word. D-A-R-N-E-L, darnel. Does anybody know what darnel is? It's a weed. Darnel is a weed. It's a tear. It's a weed. But here's the interesting thing about darnel. In fact, some Greek grammarians feel that this should have been better translated darnel than it was tears. And here's why this is important. Darnel, in its infantile beginning stages, looks the exact same as wheat does. In fact, it's not until it grows up and begins to sprout and mature that only then can you tell the difference. But as far as side by side, to your eye, you would never even begin to understand, well, yeah, that's this and that's this. This is darnel and this is wheat. We would have no way of knowing. And we're going to see that this communicates that. So the reason why I want you to put that down uh, to look at it is because it is the same thing as tears. There's no difference there. So we got all this. Man, that's down there. There we go. Is that good for everybody? Oh, okay. So notice, they sowed tares, darnel, 
among the wheat. Here's our wheat. Let's do that, wheat. That's also in verse 25. Put that there. Now watch this. The enemy comes in and sows darnel amongst the wheat. And then it says that he went away. Okay? Now I looked at that and I thought, wait a second, that's kind of strange. What's going on here? So let me give you an explanation of went away. In fact, if you would, if you if you wouldn't mind, to take your I got so much stuff. You guys in Deuteronomy class are in for a good time today. Um, if you would turn over to, let's see, one, two, three, four pages in, maybe. And at the top of the page, you're going to see where it says something. I'm sorry for the stapling. I'm going to try to change that and drop that a little bit. Compound word in the Greek being aperkomai. Am I saying that right, Pastor Steve, maybe? Just give me a star, please. Okay. The Greek being aperkomai, okay? With apo, meaning separation, is what that word means. And erkomai, meaning to come from one place to another. Metaphorically, it means to come into being. Or it can also mean to go. Together, this word means to go away from a place or to depart. Now, this is important. The enemy comes in, does his work of sowing amongst the field, alongside the wheat, the good seed that had already been spread out there. In fact, the good seed would be what comes of the wheat, right? We understand that. And then he goes away. He is separated for some reason. He's separated from the situation. Keep this in mind, okay? So the enemy, in fact, I don't know if we need to do wheat here. We might wait on this because wheat is the good seed. Moving on here. Verse, uh, sorry, uh, verse 26. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, now notice that. There was a production that came out of what was sown. When it bore grain, then the tares, the darnel, became evident also. So notice, there was no difference at all that they could perceive of what was going on until production came forth. Yes? Yes, everybody with me? Great. Verse 27, the slaves of the landowner, now we don't know who they are. Nobody ever explains who the slaves are. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? How is it that these weeds have gotten in the midst of this beautiful, beneficial crop that you sowed in your field? And look what it says. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. That is the conclusion of the landowner. Somebody came in and sowed something that wasn't supposed to be there. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now that sounds like good servants, doesn't it? You want us to go out there and do the work and we'll take care of separating it. Now watch this. But he said, verse 29, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. You may just start pulling and as you're trying to get the bad stuff, you snatch some of that good stuff too and they're not to be taken. So look what the conclusion is here. Let's see here. Uh, you will re- uh, uproot the wheat also. Verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. There you go. That's our word we're actually looking for. Harvest. And that is found in verse 30. See, look. I've already got scribbles and mess-ups all over here. You'd be surprised how much whiteout strips are in my Bible from messing stuff up, really. Um, So notice, verse 30, the harvest here. Look what it says. 
Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, okay, got another another group of people. Don't fear the reapers, right? Here we go. Some of you got that joke. Uh, the reapers. Now notice that the reapers are different from the men who fell asleep and the slaves who volunteered to go out and take care of this situation of separating these weeds from the wheat. Does everybody see this is a different group of people? Notice there's a time that comes, a time of harvest. I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Everybody understand this? Now here's the, here's the common interpretation that's been given. Well, this is easy. This is talking about the time of the church. And what happens is, is you got real, true, genuine, sold-out believers, and then you've got pseudo-sinful, wavering believers. They're not really saved people, but they're acting like they're church, but they're really not. They look like sheep, but they're really wolves. Bringing other, other parables and other teachings into this one to try to make sense of it. It doesn't have any place there. And what this is is the gospel. And you're going to find that you've got some that really hold to the gospel and some who really don't hold to the gospel. But you know what? God's going to get them all sorted out at the end and we'll find out who's a true believer and a, and a false believer. Do you think that's what this is? Of course, from the tenor of my voice, you could probably tell I don't agree with it, right? <laughs> Waiting for the honorary person. Yes. Don't care what you say. What is the subject? The kingdom of heaven. Do we have any reason in this parable that Jesus has unfolded to think any differently about what the subject should be? No. So if the text doesn't lead us in that direction, we shouldn't go there. Everybody with me? Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop down to his interpretation. Thankfully, Jesus interprets this for us. And here's the thing. It's really straightforward, but I'm still amazed at how many variations of people trying to read something into it that's just not there and getting it wrong. So what we're going to do, and we can look at this as the other side of our sheet here, right? The interpretive verses there and the interpretation contents. Go down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the darnel of the field, the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So everybody see where you've got the sower there? Go over to your other side. The Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? It is Jesus. Man, we got that one down, don't we? We know that one. Yes, yes we do, Pastor. Amen. Do me a favor, Mitch. Bring up Daniel 7 real quick. Remember the thesis statement of the Bible. It's really important. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there, but I do want to show it up here on the screen so that we see the idea of what is God going for in all of history. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Everybody see two different entities here. Son of man, ancient of days, and there is a presentation that takes place. Now let's go to the next one. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the thesis statement of the entire Old Testament and New Testament. It is the idea of God giving to his son 
a kingdom and dominion and glory. Now think back, Genesis 1. And we created them in our own image, right? And what was the command after that? Be fruitful, multiply, and have what? Have dominion. We were supposed to rule as representatives of God on earth. But when Satan came in and convinced us of what we wanted to do rather than what God told us to do, we forfeited the right to have dominion, and now he is the present ruler of this age. So this is a coming back and making all things right which we had forfeited and destroyed and soiled. This is the victory that we're looking for. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that light your fire? Even a little bit? I taught one time to a group of people on the return of Jesus and how all opposition would be killed and destroyed, and they were horrified. Jesus is a mass murderer? I was like, no, because they deserved it. Let's be honest. It was a situation where everybody hated them and he gave them numerous times to repent. He was gracious beyond belief. But there's only so much you can do with a stubborn, hard, rebellious heart. So this time of judgment, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to everything that I look out at this world and read in the newspaper and see on the news channel that is wrong and him setting it all right in a moment. See, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. Thank you for encouraging me. See, all of you that didn't say amen, you got some Baptist in your blood, so <laughs> moving on. So let's go back to this parable and take a look at it. Verse 37, and he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Son of man, messianic title. We, we get this from Daniel 7. Verse 38, and the field is what? The world. Now that should really give you a good inclination there. And notice that that is verse 38 there. We're going to get to the good seed here in just a minute. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The good seed, sons of the kingdom. Now, can I, I'm going to ask for something very honest from all of you right now. And I know it's going to hurt me a little bit, but I'm still going to ask it. Raise your hand if you read the notes throughout the week. Okay, four of you, that kills me. Okay, no, I'm kidding. There's more than that. This phrase, sons of the kingdom, is worth researching in Matthew's gospel because it'll be, you'll find some things in Matthew 8 that will intrigue you about this, this passage. So if you're looking for something good to study this week, the whole idea of what it means, the sons of the kingdom, a very, very good study to do, okay? So notice the sons of the kingdom also in verse 38 are the good seed. The field, we're told, is the world. And it says here, and the tares, the darnel, are the sons of, of the evil one, the sons of the evil one. And that is also in verse 38. See, things charts like this are extremely helpful to have when you're dealing with subjects like this. Now, that's at the end of 38. Let's go to 39. Everybody got this so far by catching up? Everybody see it okay? No, good grief, that's horrible. What is going on? There you go, is that better? Okay, there's what we have so far. Son of man, sons of the kingdom, the world, sons of the evil one. So now we're going to be filling out what is the enemy, the harvest, and the reaper. Reapers. Reapers. Okay. Notice 39. And the enemy who sowed them is who? The devil. Isn't it kind of odd that Jesus is so straightforward about this interpretation, though he was teaching in parables and we're all scratching our heads going, what's going on? This is the privilege 
of the disciples having revealed to them the mysteries of the kingdom, the things previously not understood but now made known. Now notice this next part here. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. Now this is important. We're going to talk about it more here in just a second. And the reapers are angels. That also is verse 39. You have a completed chart of everybody who's addressed in this parable. We should be able to put together the pieces pretty easily. You think? Well, maybe. Let's take a look at it. So notice, the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Verse 40, here is the explanation. He has now given you who everybody is that needs to be identified in this parable. And he tells the disciples this, verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Now pause for just a second. Everybody look back at verse 30 so we can compare this and see what's going on. <clears throat> Notice that Jesus says, or sorry, the sower says to his servants, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles, <clears throat> excuse me, to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Pause for a second. Does everybody see that the harvest, that both entities are harvested at the same time, but the darnel is taken first and then something is done with the wheat? Does everybody see that? Here's why this is important. When you look at God's prophetic timeline that is going on right now, we live in an age called the church age. And what's happened is, is we've been given a commission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And we are to go and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, and he will be with us to the end of the age. Okay, it's important. So when we talk about age, we're talking about the completion of periods of history. We have a commissioning to do. Our job right now is to go and make disciples, which means, everybody hold on to it. Here's the convicting part of the sermon. Spending time with other people. That's what that means. See, all of you started, I saw some of you get squirmy. Yes. That means investing your life into other people centered around the word of God with Jesus Christ being preeminent in your conversations. That's what it means. It's not knowing more than the other person. It is simply spending time with them and encouraging one another as long as it's called today toward that end. So we should be getting together and spurring one another on to faithfulness, love, good deeds, those things. That's our commissioning. Now, here's the thing. If what we know about Scripture is true, and I tend to think that Scripture is true, the church, by and large, fails at the end of this dispensation. However, we have a commitment here. If this local body of believers, we will not be the failing church. We will be the exception to the rule, the exception to the norm. We will not have that here. So we are going to start moving towards an area of making disciples here. And as we witness to unbelievers and they become believers, we make disciples of them as well. And the goal is to have disciples and to make disciples who turn around and make disciples. That's a lot of discipling. But here's the thing. It's completely in line 
perfectly obedient and hitting the bullseye of what Jesus Christ commanded. So we live in the church age. That is our responsibility to uphold. And we are all commissioned. It's not just pastors. It's not just elders. Every single believer is commissioned to this end. Now here's the thing. After this, what takes place at the end of the church age? The rapture takes place. Those who are believers in Christ are caught up in the air to meet Him, and we will be with Him always. At that time, the judgment seat of Christ will take place. We'll talk more about that later. But then there's seven years of tribulation that occurs on the earth. And what happens at that moment is that God takes Israel, who he placed on the back burner of the stove of history because of their rejection of their promised king, and he brings them to the front burner and starts turning up the heat. You then have the arrival of someone who we commonly call the Antichrist. That's never used of him in Scripture. He's actually known as the man of lawlessness. And he will rise to power and he will deceive many. And in the middle of that three and a half year period, he will declare himself to be God, standing in the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory presence of God dwelt in the Old Testament, where if anyone went without being clean, they would be struck down as dead. And the temple has been rebuilt at that time. And he will say to everyone on earth, Worship me or I will kill you. That is the difference. And it seems that you're going to have three groups of people. You're going to have people who run for the hills and run to safety and make it out of harm's way. You're going to have people who get killed because they don't make it out of harm's way. They were too busy going down and packing their suitcase. Instead, Jesus told them to get in the hills and and run. And you're going to have some people who go, oh, since he's standing in the Holy of Holies, this must be our Messiah. Yay, he's finally here. How do we know that? Because the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're still looking for him. Remember, this man, the man of lawlessness, is a master deceiver. And so he is going to hoodwink tons of people. This is why we got to know the Scriptures, guys. We're not going to be here for it, but we need to leave something behind to let everybody know. Make sure you're looking at this the right way. That's why we got to do this. So after the seven years of tribulation, there becomes an end of this age. And what's interesting is, is does everybody see that the harvest, both groups are harvested at the same time? The end of the age can't be the rapture. Why is that? Because the church is harvested or, or taken up, and everybody else is left behind, right? In fact, that's how Tim LaHaye made all kinds of money, left behind, right? That's the idea. I've got that series. Okay, I haven't read it, but yay. But the church is gone, yes? Now, who's his audience again? Jewish crowds. And so this is going to be something that pertains to the Jews of which he is unfolding in the hearing of his disciples because they are privileged to know the meaning behind his teaching. So if that is the case, notice that when the harvest takes place and both are gathered up by the who? The reapers. And the reapers are who? The angels, notice it's not the men who fell asleep and it's not the slaves. The angels are the one going and pulling everybody up and he does a separation process. Those who were the darnel, the weeds, are bound up and are thrown into a fire. The ones who are the sons of the kingdom are ushered into the barn. Is everybody aware that when the tribulation comes and the rapture happens that there will be Jewish people, known as the remnant, who are ushered into the tribulation in their physical bodies. Do we know that? Yes, we know that. That's going to happen. When they're ushered into there in their physical bodies, Satan is then locked away for a thousand years, yes? 
Okay, notice, they're ushered in and he's locked away. Everybody see how the enemy sowed some tares amongst some people and then he went away? He was separated? Does everybody see this? Notice it's got to stay with the kingdom. This isn't talking about the church. We're talking about the rule of Christ on earth. And so when we talk about this time of his rule being 1,000 years after the tribulation, we are talking about a time when we, who have already been raptured, gone through the judgment seat of Christ, have been given positions of ruling and reigning responsibility and authority, subservient to Jesus Christ, our high king, who is now ruling over all of the world. The field is the world, yes ruling over all of the world at that time, there will be Jews in their fleshly forms who have come into the kingdom, and because Satan is locked away, he is no longer a tempting influence on them. However, the secret, the mystery is, is that in this 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, there will be evil present. Now, this is something that wasn't understood in the Old Testament. A Jew looked at it, number one, a Jew thought that the suffering servant and the reigning king were two different people. They were actually looking for two different messiahs. They didn't understand it as being the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Does everybody understand that? So notice, that brought a lot of clarity. When we saw a kingdom promised to Jesus and yet he dies through crucifixion and then is buried and raised again. But, but, everybody with me? Okay, I'm super jazzed about this. I'm trying to hold on to myself, right? But I do need more coffee. But no, you don't. Calm down, preacher. Okay, dude, John Belushi cartwheels down the middle aisle. But in that situation, let's be honest, guys. We don't really need Satan to tempt us in order to sin, do we? Isn't that the basic fundamental problem that we've been dealing with since the garden? Sin. And what's going to happen is those Jews, that remnant who are ushered in during that time of the 1,000-year kingdom, life is going to be prolonged. I think it's Isaiah who tells us that someone who is 100 years old is going to be seen as a babe at that time, is the idea. They're going to have prolonged lives, but what you're going to find is that there is going to be within the heart rebellion, rejection of their king. Now, here's what's amazing to me. They're going to see Jesus Christ more clearly than we've ever seen him at that time. He's going to be on the throne ruling and reigning. The nations are going to come and make presentation before him. He is going to judge outwardly sinful issues with a rod of iron at that time. He will judge the nations. And yet in the Jews who are coming up through them, seeing who he is, there's still going to be this heart of sin and rejection that's going to take place. So what is the harvest? The harvest is the end of the age. Look what else it says here. Look what it says in verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. Who are the angels? The reapers. And they will gather out of his kingdom. Stop. They will gather out of what? His kingdom, which means his kingdom has to be present in order for the gathering to be taken out of it. Does everybody see that? So notice it can't be during that present time. Why? Because the Jews had already rejected the kingdom. Jesus is moving on now. It's been postponed. It can't be during the church age. Why? Because regardless of what Zondervan Publishing Company wants to tell you, the kingdom is not going on right now. This is a sad kingdom. I believe that Jesus has much better for us going on. And we're just not there yet. 
It's not going to be during the tribulation time. Why is that? Because it's going to be a final plea to Israel to repent. And we're even told by Jesus himself that at that time during the tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. Not the gospel of God's grace. I'm sure that'll be in there. But the emphasis is on the kingdom being preached at that time. So it's not going to be during that. Why would you preach about the kingdom if it was already there? And so what do you have? You have at the end of that seven-year tribulation, the return of Jesus bursting through the clouds, setting all things right, destroying all opposition, setting up his kingdom to rule and reign. And in Revelation chapter 20 from verses 2 to 7, it brings up six times, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. And we actually have a group of educated scholars that say, I don't think it's 1,000 years. It's like Barney Fife is running the seminary. What's going on? Good grief, man. It is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. If there was anything that God wanted to get through to us in those verses, it was there's going to be a 1,000-year time where Satan is locked away, never to bother anyone, and the Messiah reigns, and it's the time of the kingdom. However, because sin has not finally been dealt with, it still originates where? In the heart, within. Isn't that one of our basic foundational things we saw? Where does sin originate? Within. In the heart, it's desperately wicked. Who could know it? So notice, he's going to send his reapers reapers out. They're going to gather out of his kingdom. And look at this. All stumbling blocks. Everybody see this word? Stumbling blocks. It means all traps, all snares. Any person or thing which one is entrapped or drawn into error or sin. Now think about that when we talk about sin originating in people who are living in their physical forms during this time. All stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Now it doesn't take a genius to figure out what lawlessness means, does it? It means I refuse to abide by the rules. That's what it means. The angels are going to come and they are going to pick all those out. Why? Because those are the weeds. When they finally came to fruition and maturity, let's pick them all out. Let's gather them together and watch this. Verse 42, and we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. This is also known as the lake of fire. I do not make any apologies for the lake of fire. It is a place where people who do not have the pardon of eternal life will suffer for eternity in sulfur and brimstone. They will burn and agonize. And the reason why I have no apologies of it is twofold. Number one, Scripture clearly teaches it. Number two, it's not like people didn't have the opportunity to believe in Christ. I would hate to think that somebody went to the lake of fire because of my failure to share the gospel with them. That's a serious issue before the Lord. Everybody see that? That's important. But as far as giving the gospel to somebody and their blatant rejection and hardness of heart towards it, you can't do anything with that. Our job isn't to convert people. It's just to be faithful messengers. So that's what we do. We give them the message. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be the moving, convicting work on their lives, right? He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What's that purpose for? To bring them to the Savior. That's the reason why. And so notice, they go to the flame of fire or furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me make a comment here. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is an emotion. It's not a location. This is important. Let me give you a for instance. Whenever Esau came before Jacob in order to receive his blessing, and Jacob had already snuck in, or I'm sorry, came before Isaac to receive the blessing, and Jacob had already snuck in and taken the blessing and been blessed. Remember, he dressed up, 
put on the, the thing, and, oh, you smell like the outside. And he was blind. Isaac's blind at that time. He doesn't know. But he ends up giving this blessing to Jacob. Jacob leaves out. Esau comes, and there's no blessing left. And he cries out, and he wails, and he goes, oh! And it's anguish. Anybody ever had anguishing moments in your life? It is profound regret. It is cataclysmic in the heart. It's destroying you. Was Esau scared of hell? No. It was a situation he found himself in. So notice, it's not a location. Every time we see weeping and gnashing of teeth, don't automatically think, well, that's hell. No, it's not. It is an emotion, not a location. That's a common mistake people make. So watch this. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43. Then the righteous, that's the wheat, the sons of the kingdom, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now here's a question. After the 1,000 year reign of Christ, what comes next? Do we know? The great white throne judgment takes place for all unbelievers. They are judged according to what they've done in the body. Why are they judged according to their works? Because they don't have pardon. So as a good judge... Jesus has given them the opportunity to plead their case, whether or not he should allow them to continue on into eternity, into everlasting life. But if they don't have sufficient works, they're gone. Anybody whose name does not come up in that book, they're cast into the lake of fire. What comes after that? We know. It's what's called the eternal state. It's also, we, we characterize it by the new heavens and the new earth. The old heavens, the old earth, they'll pass away. Here's the amazing thing. The reign of Christ continues through that time. And we don't even have a whole lot that's written about it at that time, but I tell you what, it's going to be glorious. And here's the reason why it's going to be glorious. Because there will be no sin. In fact, let me show this to you. Turn over to Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. So we're going to go 55 minutes today. You're not surprised, I know. It's like, we don't expect anything less. Chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there, was, there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now here it is, because people make a mistake of taking verse 4 and including it during the seven-year reign of Christ, or I'm sorry, the 1,000-year the reign of Christ, and it's not when this happens. Watch this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe it away, but it doesn't happen until the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't happen until the eternal state is ushered in. In other words, there is evil that is going to crop up during Christ's kingdom, even though he's reigning perfectly, even though they've had the most maximum revelation they've ever had in their life of him, in the fullness of his glory, of his righteousness, of his justice, of his holiness. And they're still going to sin and rebel against him. We're going to look at that more next week, but I want you to see this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying 
or pain. And here's the reason why. Look what it says. The first things have what? Passed away. Sin, pain, hurt, defeat, discouragement, depression are all part of the first things. They are part of what where we live now. And sin is so powerful. Don't underestimate sin. It is so powerful, it not only separated us from God, but it permeates our culture. It permeates this body. See, this is why we have to take sin seriously. We've got to deal with it as God says. But it's also going to permeate, of course, to probably its apex during the seven-year tribulation. You can see that from Revelation chapter 9 very clearly. People refuse to repent of all kinds of crazy things. But then there's also still, even though Satan is locked away, but because there is the flesh that's been ushered into the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there's going to be sin that exists during the reign of Christ. It is not until this eternal state and this judgment that takes place before God's great white throne that these things are dealt with. Now you say, okay, so what? So what? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you living right now with the end in mind? Are you living right now with the understanding that sin is so serious that it causes a disconnection in how I receive God's Word? That it actually cripples me in trying to live the Christian life? There's not three sides. There's not Jesus, the devil, and then there's a fence somewhere that we all get to sit on. It's not how it works. You're either walking with Him or you're not walking with Him. Does that mean if you're not walking with Him, you're not saved? No, salvation is a gift. But what I'm trying to encourage you to is something beyond that. I'm trying to encourage you to look for a time when Jesus is going to occur or going to come back. And here's the thing. Is there anything left to happen for the rapture to take place? There's not one thing. There's not anything in prophecy of Scripture for the rapture to happen. I hope it happens today. Especially if the Packers are going to lose today, I hope it happens before that. Right? Let's hope it happens like 3, 320. We'll take that. All right? But here's the thing. Are you living in light of eternity? Does the end matter to you? Are you going to have a good showing before the Messiah? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time in the Word. Thank you, God, for how Jesus took the time to explain these high and lofty things. And that, Father, you have not left us ignorant, but you have given us the totality of Scripture to understand more and more and more. Father, we are not without information in order to shape our existence. I pray, Father, every single person here would leave with the consecrated conviction that the end is so worth it now. Father, we cannot afford to dabble in sin. We cannot afford to mess around with the world or to sit on the fence, or to play church. You see all things. You see all of it. None of it is hidden from your sight. Thank you, God, for having mercy on an undeserving people. You show your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, God, for being a merciful, wonderful, amazing Savior. And if we need that correction of heart now, Pray, God, the Spirit, give it to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.